Listening to Real Talk SLP with your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. This is a show to help speech pathologists navigate the SLP world with real life stories to celebrate therapy successes and how to persevere when failure comes knocking on your door. Hello, this is the Real Talk SLP podcast, and I'm your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. Welcome, welcome. I'm really excited for the guests that I'm going to have on today because they're going to be talking about self-regulation and social pragmatics. These are two areas that I think can be very overwhelming for the school-based SLP and the private practice SLP, but it can just be really hard to figure out what is impacting this child from being able to participate in a group or to navigate social situations? And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, there's a, I've had a lot of kids over the years where I will get a referral from a teacher who says they're not paying attention. They're very impulsive. They don't know how to interact with kids um, out on the playground and in the classroom. They're not, they don't know how to follow the, the, the nuances of the classroom. And you're sitting there testing them and you're going, okay, they seem to have the language. They seem to know what to say when it's me and them together. Yes, they're impulsive or yes, they're struggling with this, but is this something, is there something else going on that's impacting them? Is it their ability to pay attention and to self-regulate their, their emotions? Or is it a social pragmatic disorder where they don't really, they're struggling with the link, the social language and how to use it in social situations. And I know that this can be a real tricky area because sometimes they have both, right? They have some, some needs with self-regulation and they need some occupational therapy for that. And they have a social pragmatic disorder, right? But piecing that out is really, really hard. And I know that over the years, I have, you know, leaned on my occupational therapist and leaned on that knowledge, or at least knowing that I should reach out to them when I have a student who isn't paying attention, who's struggling with sitting in their seat, who's struggling to, you know, express themselves and what they need and want in a social situation without, you know, throwing themselves on the ground and screaming and crying. And, and if you have some kids on your caseload like that, that are exhibiting some of those, 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 you know, behaviors or, or struggling with navigating the school day, I think you're really going to like this episode because I have an occupational therapist and a speech pathologist team coming on to talk about self-regulation and how to approach social pragmatics while co-teaching with an OT. And, and they're also going to be sharing just some real practical things you can do in your therapy sessions to help with, with teaching, uh, social communication, but also to be mindful of the child's regulation and how to help them with self-regulating in the therapy session. 
I think you're going to be really excited about this episode because you're going to be able to go, yes, now I have some ideas for this student that I've been really struggling with how to support them in the classroom or in, in therapy. And, and it's always, it's really cool when I see teams collaborating, interdisciplines collaborating together, because you know what happens? It's child focused and it helps both professionals serve the student well, right? And when we get the tips and tricks from that other professional and we can implement those that, those things in our sessions, the child is getting another opportunity to practice and generalize one of their goals or skills that they need to be successful. So you know me, if you've been following me for a while, I love collaboration and I love collaborative services. And so I think you're going to be, and even though if you know th these two ladies work together in a private clinic. So if you're not in a clinic, we definitely talk about some workarounds on how to make, you know, collaboration with the OT and the SLP work if you're in the school settings. So I hope you enjoy this interview that I had with Allie and Brittany. Let's head over to that interview now. Welcome, Brittany and Allie, to the Real Talk SLP podcast show. I am excited to have an OT SLP pair come on the show. We're going to be talking about how to co-treat with social communication and self-regulation groups. And so I'm really excited to have you on the show. Great. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's it's so cool. I'm excited about this topic too because I think there's a lot of school-based SLPs that listen to this show that will love to hear your tips and how you guys are working together to serve students with social pragmatics. And I would love it if you both just introduced yourself, shared some of your professional background, and even how you both got started co-treating together. So I don't know if Brittany, you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. So yeah, my name is Brittany and I'm a registered occupational therapist. And I work with Allie at a private practice up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So we're up in the north with lots of snow. Um, and our practice is called the Red Oak Center. And it's a multidisciplinary practice. So we have occupational therapy, speech and language pathology, as well as psychology, executive function coaching and academic support. So I am the director of the occupational therapy department at our practice. And within our practice, we work with a lot of children on self-regulation and sensory processing challenges. Very, very cool. Allie. Yeah. So my name is Allie. And as Brittany said, I also work at the Red Oak Center, but I am a speech pathologist. I work with children really any age, like 18 months all the way to teens and tweens. And I do a lot of speech sound disorders and language delays and disorders. But the area I practice the most is social communication and self-regulation and social communication really overlap a lot. So Brittany and I and the OTs at, um, at the Red Oak Center work very closely together. Yeah, that's so cool. Before we dive into talking about self-regulation, as you as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I always ask my guests to share a song that comes to mind that makes them think of the topic that we're talking about. So I would love it if you sh both shared a song that reminds you of teamwork or a song that you need to listen to when you need to be regulated to be in a calm, happy place because, you know, self-regulation is all about regulating our emotions. So whenever, whoever wants to share first, they can. Sure, I can go first. Oh, okay. So 
Um, the song that came to mind first for me is the song from Zootopia that Shakira sings that is like, dun, 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 try everything. Not a singer, but there you go. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I always play the song during therapy because I think it's super upbeat. Uh, like you said, it just helps, it helps me to relax and feel calm in my therapy sessions. And it also helps to engage my clients if they don't want to do something. I just put the song on in the background or we have to transition from one activity to another, I just throw that song on. So it's sort of my go-to therapy song. Cool. Mine's a little bit more on the mellow side. I think that this song, Lean On Me by Bill Withers, fits the description of both teamwork, um, because it's about, you know, being able to lean on someone when you need them, like I do with the OTs at the Red Oak Centre. And it's also a calming song that can get your your brain and your body nice and regulated. It totally is a good calm song. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I haven't listened to that song in a long time. I know. I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I, I don't know what song I would necessarily pick, but lately I've been listening on Spotify when I have to write reports or really focus and be in a, like calm my brain, so to speak. Um, low beats. It's just a low beats playlist. I don't know. I searched for it and it's just, you know, random songs that are like boop boop you know I don't know I can't almost like easy jazz (laughs) it's electronic tunes that have no words so um (laughs) yes gentle music and even then sometimes I have to just turn it off to be completely focused if I've had a really long day but that usually keeps me calm when I need to uh, step away from life and do something for work but yeah, I love it. So let's start off with just, you know, Brittany, why don't you share what self-regulation is and what it might look like for a child who's struggling with self-regulation so that we can kind of delineate self-regulation versus social communication? Yes, that's a, that's a tricky one to delineate as Ali and I often talk about. So getting into self-regulation, it is the ability to manage a person's impulses, emotions, and energy levels to maintain a calm and alert state for a given situation. So it's an executive function skill that takes time to develop. Uh, We're not born with the ability to self-regulate, and we do need to have lots of sort of experiences of co-regulation to learn how to self-regulate. And I think the most important thing to think about with self-regulation is remembering that it is context-dependent. Um, So the relatable example I always think of, again, for us up in Canada, is when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship back in 2019. Uh, People were flooding the streets downtown, honking their horns on the highway, screaming, running around. And so these behaviors would be unexpected on a normal Thursday night at 10 p.m., but they were totally expected in that situation. And so I think that's a good reminder that self-regulation can and often does look like being sort of calm and in an alert state, but it really is just that ability to match what is going on around you. And so for children that struggle with self-regulation, it might look like having big emotional meltdowns over small problems or shouting out an answer in class as soon as a child has that idea. It could look like having lots of energy at recess and then when they come back into the classroom, they're not able to kind of slow their energy level down and so they run into the classroom and start screaming or singing or dancing. Um, Or it could look like the lack of ability to stop and problem solve when they're getting in conflicts with peers. Cool. I love how you broke that down and gave really specific examples because that helps me to picture some kids and like (laughs) 
and what self-regulation is. And so, and then you were saying too, that when you're born, we have to learn self-regulation. So we're not just, it's not an innate thing. No, it's not. So when we're born, we, we actually regulate through co-regulation. So this is what you see when you see sort of uh, a caregiver, you know, looking at a child and, you know, making their baby voice and, you know, humming and hawing at the child and cooing. And then the child responds back. Those are all moments of attachment and growth and in sort of a healthy attachment relationship that develops co-regulation because that child learns that they're safe. And then same again, when, you know, a child gets a little bit older, they fall in the playground and then they look up at, you know, their parent and oh, their parent stays calm. So the child learns, I can stay calm right now. So research shows that we actually need many, many, many experiences of co-regulation to be able to then start to self-regulate. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I lo- Thank you for elaborating on that because that, I've never heard. So co-regulation is just basically when you are experiencing something with another person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're reg- yeah, exactly. So you're, you're uh, regulating from another person. It's kind of like a, a social dance of figuring out how other people around you are feeling and being able to match your emotions, your impulses, your energy level to those people around you. Perfect. And then that totally lines up with your example. So now it's really clicking for me, <laughs> I think. It is, it's a complicated uh, concept <laughs> for sure. Well, yeah, no, I, I totally get it now. So like when you know, with the, what was it? The Toronto, what did you say? The, Raptor, the, one, the, the Toronto Raptors, the, the basketball team here. I I don't know anything about that. I mean, I know how to play basketball, but I don't follow any of that. So I, I <laughs> okay. That, so that totally makes sense. I love that example. All right. So that is a really good explanation of self-regulation. And so I would love Allie if you could just jump in and talk about, you know, when an SLP is assessing or gets referrals or has a student on their caseload with social pragmatic needs, you know, how social pragmatics maybe is, I don't want to say different than self-regulation, but just how they could be separate things or when they kind of both influence each other. I don't know if that question, if that was framed well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And as Brittany was kind of saying before, we're constantly saying, okay, is this child having difficulty with self-regulation because they're having trouble socially and they're having trouble with their peers or are they having trouble socially because they are having trouble self-regulating? So it really is sometimes hard to tease out exactly what's going on. I think the most helpful is to just do a lot of informal assessment And I rely a ton on parent report and a child self-report when they can. So trying to ask parents, are they having trouble, you know, knowing what to say when they go up to someone on the playground or are their peers uncomfortable because they're screaming and crying when they lose a game? Are they having difficulty reading nonverbal cues like body language, tone of voice, facial expression, or... Are they having a huge meltdown, a huge reaction when they don't get to be first in line? So I'm trying to tease out kind of what the main challenge is. If it's more, I'm having trouble making friends, I'm having trouble keeping friends, um, reading people's cues, picking up on those really nuanced, hidden rules of social situations, then it's probably more of 
uh, my scope and my and what I work on. But if it's, you know, having a lot of difficulty with those big emotions and having big reactions that are ultimately making peers uncomfortable or making peers not really want to hang out with that person, um, then it might be more Brittany's area self-regulation. So it's tricky, but I think it's why we're so lucky that we're able to be on the same team and sometimes work on work together on with the same client or say, you know, I think this might be more of a self-regulation challenge, or I think this might be more of a social communication challenge. So it's, we're very lucky that we're able to kind of bounce it off of each other and go back and forth if we need. Cause you probably see each other every day or at least once a week. Yeah. We, yeah, we did before COVID. COVID. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, exactly. or you could just pop by. Yeah, I know for myself, I've either worked at places where the OT was on campus the same day as me, and then other times they're a thief in the night and they're all <laughs> over the place because they have a big caseload. Mm-hmm. But I love the way you described how you look for social pragmatic needs versus self regulation. And so, my question is. Can, do you see kids where you find that they kind of have both, you know, they have self-regulation needs or sensory processing needs and social pragmatic deficits? When I was thinking about this question earlier, you know, I was thinking about some of the more formal diagnoses of kiddos that we see, even though we also work with a lot of children that don't have a formal diagnosis. But for example, thinking about autism spectrum disorder, we know that children who have autism tend to have a lot of sensory processing challenges as well as social pragmatic deficits. So that's an example of a population that probably has both. And then speaking a little bit more to kind of what some of those sensory processing challenges could look like, which impacts self-regulation. You know, a child could be hyposensitive or underreactive to sensory information. And so they actually need more sensory information to their body to feel safe and regulated. So these are the kids that might kind of be going around and touching everything or putting things in their mouth or having a really hard time sitting still. And then we also have kids that could be hypersensitive, uh, being more overreactive. And so they might be more sensitive to touch. And so the tags behind their shirt bother them or loud noises bother them or bright lights bother them. And sensory gets really complicated. You could even have a kid that is hypersensitive in one area and hyposensitive in the other area. But again, we know that children who have uh, ASD can have sensory challenges as well as the social communication difficulties. And then another uh, type of kiddo that we see often is a child with ADHD, which, as we know through research, ADHD is deficits in executive function skills. And so when we think about uh, executive function skills, we think about self-regulation, we think about flexible thinking, emotional control, self-monitoring, planning. And I don't think it's hard to imagine why a child that has a hard time with being flexible or controlling their emotions or self-monitoring might, uh, you know, have a hard time with building social relationships and engaging in different social situations. Right. Um, So those are just some examples of where you could have both. Yeah, I've seen that too, where I'll have a child with autism and trying to, like Allie said, teasing out, okay, what is the big, not the bigger area of need, but what is influencing what, and Mm -hmm. that can be tricky. So yeah. And I think with ADHD and what I'm learning a lot, really actually in the last like month is the, the challenges with organization in 
ADHD. It's so much more than organization of your backpack or your desk. And it's really organization of your thoughts. And so a lot of our clients with ADHD, they seem, it feels like they're always going off topic or interrupting or, you know, jumping in at a time where it's unexpected. And I think kind of realizing that it's a lot of the time has to do with, you know, the disorganization of their thoughts and kind of taking that approach can really help because those are the areas of social communication that are really impacting their friendships because their friends don't want to hang out with them if they're going to be constantly interrupting and jumping in all the time. So again, they really go hand in hand and OT and Mm -hmm. especially with the type of clients we see. So it's a constant connection of, okay, what's, what's actually going on here. Right. What's underneath all of it. And it could even shape, you know, am I going to do, you know, social thinking type therapy, or am I going to do executive Mm -hmm. functioning approach to getting to the heart of where their biggest area of need is. So thanks for those uh, examples. I, I would like to know just a little bit about like how you guys co-treat, you know, once you've established who would be, do you guys co-treat in groups as an individual? And then what does your session kind of look like so that SLPs and can see what it could look like in their setting or at their school if they co-treated with an OT? So I can talk a little bit about sort of individual treatment sessions and how we might co-treat. And then I know Allie is going to talk to us about group, which is one of the things we love to do together. So in terms of just individual therapy, sometimes we will have sort of a client that does do, you know, an OT session with myself or one of our other OTs, as well as a speech and language uh, session after or on a different day of the week. Um, So that is one of the ways that we commonly do it. And then we're always talking to each other and, you know, making sure that our goals are aligning and also that we're working on, you know, different things. And also sometimes it is figuring out like, hey, we we notice that a child after they do an OT session, they're more alert and they're able to actually engage more in SLP. So let's always do them back to back this way or the opposite. You know, they're super tired after OT and so they, you know, can't actually participate well in SLP. So there's some of that figuring out to do. We have co-treated together in the past where we're actually doing a session with a child at the same time. So one specific example I remember was a really, really little guy with ASD who was working on a lot of communication skills, but he was also had a lot of sensory needs. And so he was very, he was very low arousal. And so we figured out that I figured out that getting him up on a swing or bouncing on a ball, getting some vestibular input really helped to just wake his body up. And then he was able to engage more in his speech therapy goals. So I did, I would be sitting with him on a swing, bouncing on a ball up and down or, you know, going down the slide. And then in between our activities, Ali would come in and actually work on some of the um, speech goals, such as joint attention, imitating sounds, all of those things. So sometimes we will actually treat together. There's sometimes limitations to that in terms of scheduling, which is why, you know, groups are sort of the thing that we we find best to be able to co-treat together. I think Ali is going to share a little bit about group. Yeah. So one of the, you know, the great things that we offer at the Red Oak Center is our groups, and they are largely based on the social thinking curriculum by Michelle Garcia-Winner and the Zones of Regulation by Leah Kuypers. Um, So pretty much we group children by age or also cognitive level. And oftentimes they're clients that we've already been seeing one-on-one. Sometimes they're new clients and we work with them 
pretty much just on self-regulation and social communication goals. So zones of regulation, understanding their own and others, you know, internal and external body clues um, for different zones, working on understanding the size of the problem and making sure that they understand how to match the size of the problem to the size of their reaction. Uh, being a social detective to figure out the hidden rules for different social situations. And the main goal, I think, of the groups is to really help our clients to understand that their behaviors impact other people's thoughts and feelings about them. So if they act in X, Y, Z type of way, that behavior is going to impact how their peers think about them, what they feel about them in a positive or negative way. So just like they have thoughts and feelings about other people, people also have thoughts and feelings about them. So that's sort of one of the main overarching kind of goals of the groups. But uh, yeah, we've had a ton of success with those groups. Parents love them. We had like six lined up right before COVID hit and had to cancel all of them. So we're hoping in the future we can get it back up again. But um, yeah, we have a ton of success because it's really awesome to be able to because we've said that, you know, social communication and self-regulation go hand in hand. It's so good to be able to do them together in the same six week group. Um, and we've had a lot of really good feedback from them. So both the OT and the SLP are running the group. And then since you guys are a private practice, is this parent pay or is can they can parents get this approved with their insurance or how does that work? So yeah, it's a little it's very different in Canada, but it's uh, parents pay out of pocket and then some parents have coverage from their uh, insurance companies like through work or, you know, some yeah. people pay for private insurance, but um, some people have it covered. Some people don't just depends on the situation. Totally. Um, yeah. And I would say I kind of have, I've never done it with an OT, like I said, because I've had, you know, we're not at the same, we're not on campus, but I do keep them in the loop when I'm like, Hey, I have a, I have a couple of kids. I'm going to use that zones of regulation book. Um, and I will go into the classroom and do a, a whole class lesson so that I can also get the, the teacher on board with learning the vocabulary so that they can reinforce it. And then hopefully the OT at least knows. And so that can be a workaround for SLPs in the schools when you're like, I don't have time to do a group with the OTs. You just you could do it in your own speech room and just create more of a consult model with your OT where you share a Google doc with them and keep them up to date with where you're at, you know, or you text them or whatever. It doesn't have to be, you could have workarounds basically is what, if you don't have this type of model in front of you, but yeah. that sounds really cool. And I hope you guys can get that back up and running. I know. I hope so too. <laughs> I just wanted to add, I was thinking about this as you were speaking about not necessarily seeing, you know, the OT or the SLP in school. I think one of the cool benefits to our group, like not for our clients, but for us is that I get to watch Allie in action or some of our other speech therapists. And I, I pick up, I mean, I am by no means a speech therapist and I could never, you know, do that treatment without the training, but I do pick up on tips and tricks as I watch her treating and I'm like, oh, okay. The next time I want my child to request something, I'm going to put it in a Tupperware or, you know, this is how I'm going to wait a few seconds before the child makes, you know, a request or, you know, this is where I'm going to tell the kid to put their tongue to make a sound. So I sort of get to pick up and learn some of those strategies that I can kind of bring in a little bit into my session, never to replace speech therapy, 
But in the same way, I think Allie and our other speech therapists have picked up on strategies that we do as OTs, such as, oh, I'm going to use the zones of regulation, or here's a sensory strategy that I can use to regulate my child. And I know one of our other speech therapists that I used to work a lot with, we would joke about how, you know, I'm an OT that's secretly (laughs) an SLP and she's an SLP that's secretly an OT. So if you do have an opportunity to kind of work collaboratively, then I would always recommend it. Yeah. Um, And I was going to like talk about what you were talking about earlier, Brittany, about when you're doing one-on-one therapy. I had a kid too that had ASD and I was really struggling to get him to pay attention, to even participate. Mm. And so I just started collaborating with some OTs and some in my district, but then I was also going reaching out to SLPs like, have, does anyone have an OT? You know, trying to find mm. um, some tips because I just wasn't happy with how like the sessions were a little bit laborious and not fun um, because... Mm you know, I was always regulating behavior too. Cause you know, with regulation, mm-hmm. there's sometimes behaviors like eating things and all that yep. fun stuff. But do you ever feel like SLPs could collaborate more with OTs on just getting like a, um, I know they say sensory diet, but just kind of like a warm up too, because, you know, the OT hadn't come out yet, but I started using uh, heavy work and having the child push me around on my chair and do some other things. And that really, it took a few sessions, but it started to help a lot. And I was really happy for anyone that was going to give me some advice on that. Yeah, I think you bring up this whole idea of like a consultation model. Sometimes when we're focusing on treatment, we're very, very focused on you know, our client and their goals. And sometimes we forget, I think I did work in school health for a little bit. And again, I know it's very different, uh, what it kind of looks like up here in Canada. But I, you know, fine, if you grab a kid, and you take them out of the classroom, and you do a couple activities with them, and you put them back in, but you haven't collaborated with and you haven't done any skill building with the teacher, or any skill building with the other, you know, professionals on the team, then the child maybe got super well regulated in my 30 minute OT session. And then I bring them back into the classroom. And an hour later, they're dysregulated again, and the teacher doesn't know what to do. Right. So I definitely think there's great opportunity for OTs to collaborate with and to teach speech therapist strategies around uh, self-regulation, sensory regulation. And then the same way, I'm sure that we could learn a lot from our speech therapists as well. Yeah, totally. And then when you guys, Allie, when you're planning the the groups, are you the one that's kind of steering the ship with planning or is it, or do you just follow the curriculum or how does, how does planning go with those groups? No, it's like, it's completely equal. I would say it's very much half and half social and self-reg. So we do all the planning together all the notes together, all of that. Everything is pretty much done completely as a team. Uh, we we kind of get into a good groove where, you know, the OT runs the first activity, the SLP runs the third, or we break up into groups. So it's very much uh, an equal amount on with both OT and SLP. Very cool. And so then when you're planning it in the beginning, when you're probably getting this all set up, did it take extra planning time? And then now do you feel like it's one of those well-oiled machines where you can set up another class and you could easily implement? For sure. So uh, I often run the groups also with another OT and we were really lucky because Brittany and another SLP actually created this whole program. um, And then we kind of started doing them as what, like in addition to, and sort of as they, you know, took a break from them, we, we decided to pick it up and do more groups. So we just had 
their original group and we just made some tweaks, changed it for specific clients. Um, so I think in the initial upfront work was probably a lot for Brittany and the um, other SLP and then for myself and the other OT. But then as you do it a few times, it really becomes much easier and like second nature. Second totally. nature, is that the right yeah. term? <laughs> it becomes a lot easier and a lot less planning needs to go into it, which is really nice. And then the other thing is once we have that first group, we were also able to make a 2.0 group, which was kind of a continuation of the group. And then we even had a 3.0 group ready to go before COVID. We had so much interest and in so many parents that really enjoyed it that they wanted more and kind of more groups to keep building on the skills. Cool. Awesome. And I would say it's from what you guys have both described that some of the foundational pieces to collaborating with the OT or doing these these co-treat session groups is that you have to communicate well, put in the work up front, and then also, you know, be okay with that because, you know, because I'm sure it's a breeze now, but up front, it's like well worth time together. And then also defining the roles and who's going to do what so that you don't step on each other's toes, but also, and then you tweak. I don't know. That's how I do push in and collaborate. Exactly. We have to be flexible. Like we teach (laughs) our clients every day. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So yeah, you have to have a flexible nature when you're doing, when you're co-treating, which can be hard for us sometimes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But What now? So I know some SLPs may have some questions like, okay, I don't have access to OT all the time. What self-regulation strategies could I use when I have a student who's struggling with paying attention? So I don't know if you have any tips, Brittany, on Uh that, but just some quick things that they can try Monday morning when they, you know, get there for therapy to help increase paying attention. Yeah. So you already mentioned a great one, heavy work. That is a big go-to for occupational therapists. Uh, So those that maybe don't know what heavy work is, it's really any type of compression to our muscles and to our body. So anything that is pulling something heavy, carrying something heavy, pushing, jumping, uh, getting uh, big type hugs to our body. So that all gives sort of proprioceptive and tactile input and it can release dopamine and serotonin to our brain to help calm us down and help us focus. So yeah, Monday morning, you get to school, you grab a kid and they are bouncing off the walls. My go-to would be, okay, heavy work. So maybe even it's incorporating heavy work uh, as you, I don't know if you're doing more of a push-in model or a pull-out model, but if you are, you know, pulling the kid out, okay, we're going to do animal walks to the therapy room. Or I've seen some great photos on the internet of like uh, sensory walks, right? So there's tape on the floor where you, you know, do an animal walk and then you stop and there's hands on the wall and you do some push-ups and then you do jump and you roll and you spin. So those types of activities, getting them to run errands for the teacher in the classroom, carrying something heavy to the classroom next door. A lot of these are, you know, we have to be more creative during COVID, but there's definitely ways to do it. So heavy work is a good one. And then also when it comes to movement, I think sometimes we forget that movement can be dysregulating for kids as well. So thinking about movement, we want to make sure that any uh, that we're doing movement that is linear and repetitive. So that's why, you know, we love swings, getting on a swing and going forwards and backwards, side to side, bouncing up and down on a ball. That can be really calming, jumping on a trampoline. But as soon as we add rotation, so if you're on a swing and you're spinning or you're jumping and you're spinning, that's very dysregulating. And so that might actually make a child 
uh, be sort of more silly or more disorganized and not be able to focus as well. So thinking about the type of movement that we're actually doing. Um, Ali, do you want to share some of the sort of strategies that you use as a speech therapist? Yeah. And uh, just like Brittany was saying that, you know, she can pick up on some things that SLPs do. I've definitely taken, you know, a lot of OT strategies. I mean, I certainly didn't learn any of this in grad school. That's for sure. But I pretty much implement a movement break in every single one of my sessions, unless the child's older, because then they don't want to. But I pretty much if I do a if I'm making a group plan, we do a go noodle break in the middle of the session where we go on YouTube and we the child picks the go noodle video, they do the video in the middle, and then we come back. And I just find that that break that they know is going to come every session, they look forward to it, it just really helps for the focus from the for the beginning of the session and for the end of the session. So go noodle breaks or any movement break is really are really effective. And then I've also I mean this is a little bit harder when we're not at work, but I find that the you know those move and sit cushions where they put them, you know, under their bum so they can just wiggle a bit or put the theraband around their chair so they can wiggle their feet and then something a lot easier is to just have the child have something in their hands to just keep their hands nice and busy, keep their hands fidgeting. And again, that's all stuff I would never have known if I hadn't worked with OTs. Um, Just things that I found have really helped with attention and focus for, um, for my clients. Yeah. I love those tips. Those are just like little easy things you can do to tweak your session. It doesn't require a lot of prep. Go noodles are great for that. Or I'll inventory the kids. Well, yeah, you also don't want to pick songs that are gonna that they are obsessed with. Yeah. Because then they, they're gonna want to use it again and again. So Yeah, well, I actually used that the other day. I it was a really good opportunity because I have a client with ASD that's uh likes to do this, is very uh, likes to do the same thing over and over again. And part of the session was I said, okay, next week I'm picking the go noodle. And the beginning of the session said, I just want to remind you, I'm picking the go noodle today. And I picked the go noodle and he was fine with it. And we celebrated how flexible he was and how okay with he was with, you know, the change and he didn't know what it was going to be. So yes, they can get very stuck on a specific <laughs> go noodle, but I did use it as sort of a, a teaching opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> a social language yeah. opportunity yeah, and exactly. a self-regulating too, because um, you have to stay calm when things don't go your way, exactly. <laughs> which uh, brings me to my next question that I would love to talk about. Like, you know, Brittany sharing maybe some ways that SLPs can work on impulse control mm-hmm. and, and getting kids to control, you know, how they express their emotions. And mm-hmm. then maybe from Allie, just like how you're, how you would approach that from a social language perspective. But cause I know those things really, I see those go hand in hand with kids with social pragmatic disorders is they struggle with regulating and then Mm. expressing when they're feeling a certain way it comes out you know all sorts of ways (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so zones of regulation is a program that we use a lot through red oak we you know i i mean talk about i live breathe sleep eat blue zone green zone yellow zone red zone um so if you're looking for something to actually teach your child in therapy to help them understand their emotions express their emotions recognize how they're feeling i definitely recommend the zones of regulation 
I also use a lot of social thinking. Um, speaking of kind of collaboration, using something that was designed by a speech therapist. But again, I think I can read the We Thinkers, Evan, Ellie, Jesse, Molly books in my sleep. Um, <laughs> but they, I think they're just really good um, therapy tools for us to use when it comes to things like expressing our emotions and helping a child to be able to recognize their impulses, recognize their energy level, recognize how their body feels uh, when they're, they're at a different sort of um, arousal state. And then the other thing that I would say is uh, trying to, if you can, if, as a speech therapist, if you can, trying to understand the child's sensory profile. So if you can talk to the teacher or even, sorry, not the teacher, the OT, um, or even talk to the parents and find out if they've had OT in the past and they've been told any information about their child. So thinking about again, is their child more hypersensitive? So I know speech therapists love their board games. And I know that because Allie has the best board games, and I'm always going into her office and stealing them. But maybe for some children, you know, those board games are going to be too overstimulating, or maybe they're going to make sounds. And you know, a child might be more sensitive to the types of sounds. And so, you know, you have this great idea to play this really cool game that's going to get them to meet some therapy goal and instead they go into fight or flight mode and they're you know having a temper tantrum on the floor for half their session and you're like oh no what did I do so having a bit of an idea of their sensory profile ahead of time can really help and then another uh, sort of framework that I use a lot of is the DIR DIR floor time model so thinking about getting down on the child's level being really attuned to the child following the child's lead those are all you know type those, those thoughts following the child's lead, that is very big in floor time. It's also very uh, big in air sensory integration. So being able to just be tuned into the child and, you know, okay, maybe they don't even realize it, but you're like, okay, they're talking really fast today. Something must be bothering them or they're fidgeting a lot in their seat. And then you can say, hey, let's take a break. Let's do a go noodle. Let's, you know, do 10 jumping jacks, figuring out kind of ahead of time before it turns into a big, meltdown and then your session is kind of ruined yeah and when you live in that zones of regulation world I haven't lived in it in a while because I used to use it all the time and now I have younger kids and we're I would use it for a couple kids but yeah I totally know where you're going okay they're in the yellow zone (laughs) and we need to get them back down real quick (laughs) or it's gonna be red zone situation (laughs) so yeah if if you're not familiar with zones of regulation go check it out but yeah it's like you want to keep it. We want to stay in the, the green zone as much as possible. I'd say everyone feels that way. I mean, I feel that way. I don't want to be yeah. in the zone. I mean, and and just to, if I could soapbox for a little second here around the zones, is making sure, I mean, yes, we want to be in the green zone, and especially during therapy and during school. Um, an article that Ali and I refer parents to a lot is titled, All Zones Are Okay. Uh, and I just think that's an important message because sometimes we, and I think I do it too, unintentionally, teach kids that the green zone is the good zone. And if we're not in the green zone, there's something wrong with you. And so being able to help a child to recognize like, okay, I'm in the yellow zone right now, I'm feeling fidgety, or I'm feeling frustrated, that's okay. It's okay that I'm frustrated. However, I have, you know, my speech therapist here asked me to do something, or I have to go and write a test. So what strategy am I going to use to regulate my emotions so that I can get through it? So just a, you know, something that I'm even learning every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that because it is true. I mean, it's, I, yeah, there's times where I just need to be angry so I can move on, but learning the strategies 
and that social pragmatic piece on how to express myself mm-hmm. so that I don't <laughs> just yeah. be destructive I, or that I can share it in a healthy way. I like, so I totally love that. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's really, you know, talking a lot. And I kind of said this before about how, yeah, it's okay to be in the red zone, but when I do, you know, if I, if I start, you know, I don't know, screaming, crying, throwing something, cause I'm feeling so angry. What, what are people going to think around me? Like, I think people might start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And if people are feeling uncomfortable, then they might think, oh, I don't don't really know that I want to play with Allie anymore because Allie gets really angry when she loses a game and that's not so fun for me anymore. So, you know, helping them to understand, like I said before, that, that their behaviors really impact other people's thoughts and feelings about them. And that can be a really, really positive thing. And it can make, you know, make you be really fun to be around. Everybody feels really comfortable around you. feels really good around you, but it can also sort of have the opposite effect. So, totally. Yeah. 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 So I don't know if you, Allie, want to sh- share some things that you do to help with impulse control and helping students share like, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit angry right now. I'm in the, you know, I'm in the red zone, you know, those types of strategies to help students with communicating Yeah, well, two things come to mind. The first is I statements, because a lot of my clients, if they're angry because someone's doing something to bother them, for example, they'll just say, stop, stop, stop it, leave me alone. And I, and I, and they say, well, I told them to stop. And we talk about how, yeah, you told them to stop, but stop what and why? Like, why should they stop and what should they stop? So I'm feeling super annoyed that you keep tapping me on the back. Can you please stop doing that? And if you say that in a calm voice with a calm face and a calm body, that might have a different impact than if you scream, stop, stop, stop. If they keep going, then you can, okay, maybe this becomes a bigger problem and we have to get a little bit of help. But sort of explaining that if we express our feelings and yes, it's really hard at the moment. And I know that, but equipping them with that tool to say, I'm feeling X, Y, Z when you do blah, blah, blah. Can you please do this? Or can you next time do that? So I think that's a really good tool to teach clients. And I even talked about it with one of my 17 year old clients the other day. Obviously we framed it a little bit differently, but you know, even conflict with her friends, just expressing what she's feeling, why she's feeling that and what she wants from the friendship kind of really just change the game a little bit. And the other kind of social area when I was thinking about for impulse control is really working on not interrupting and Mm -hmm. sort of not interrupting, but also staying on topic. And I, I think that does have a lot to do with impulse control and organization and sort of realizing, okay, I have a lot that I want to say. And that's great. Like, it's so awesome that when you're talking about your pet fish. I'm thinking about the fish that I caught last year with my grandfather. And I want to tell you, and that's great. Like we have so much we want to share, but we need to make sure that we're not interrupting, that we're not, you know, bombarding a conversation. And then what we're saying is on topic. If it's not on topic, we have to wait and then, you know, chime in later and bring or switch the conversation a little bit later, but kind of trying to be aware of is what I'm saying what's expected right now? Is this the right time? Is this the right place? Is it the right situation? So obviously this is all way easier said than done. And it takes a lot of video coaching and practice and role playing and activities. And it takes sessions and sessions and sessions. But that's sort of 
a big goal that I have for a lot of my clients. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's where you're headed, but you're breaking it down session by session for them. Um, But I like that whole idea of having almost like it's a sentence frame where they can fill in the blank and practice saying how they feel and then what they can do. And that would solve, that would keep things as small problems instead of getting bigger and bigger. And and I think teaching our kids that too. So I love all your guys' practical tips. This is really helpful. And for those out there in the, you know, listening to the podcast, I would love it if both of you shared where they can follow you if you're on social media and so they can ask follow-up questions. So for myself, I have an Instagram page and it's at ot.with.brittany. So OT with Brittany. And that's basically, yeah, where I post lots of tips and resources and strategies and random thoughts that I have about therapy. Um, And then I uh, am just practicing in Toronto every day. So if you are from up here and you're like, hey, maybe my kid needs self-regulation or social communication skills, we are at the Red Oak Center. Very cool. How about you, Allie? My Instagram, it's a little bit newer, but it's at express underscore yourself speech. And I also have a website where I post blog posts. I actually have one on self-regulation and stuttering because I have another job where I work with preschool and school age children that stutter. So that's www.expressyourselfspeech.ca and you can check out my blogs there. I will put that in the show notes, but thank you ladies for coming on the podcast and sharing this really cool model that you guys have going. I can tell your students are deaf or your students. I always say students, but they're probably, you could probably call them clients yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, are benefiting from this style of treatment. So awesome. Well, before I start rambling more, mm-hmm. I'm going to just end this here. And Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you so fun much. Talking. Yeah. I love um, talking to, t- you know, collaborative teams and getting to hear and see what they're doing with their students. So I think a lot of people are going to have a lot of uh, tips to take away and try with their own caseloads or their own private practices. So remember all you rock star SLPs out there to be the SLP that every kid wants to see and stay inspired until next week. See ya. Bye. Thank you. Ha <laughs> ha